Thank you, sir. Back in 1891, before I was born, Fanny Crosby wrote a song, and the song was, common title is, I shall know him, I shall know him, when redeemed by his side I shall stand, I shall know him by the nail prints in his hand. And that song has a certain level of meaning when you have that certain level of understanding. But when you understand that she was a blind poet, if she saw Jesus on this, or if Jesus was on the earth, she could not see him, but she could have felt the nail prints. And when she gets to heaven, when redeemed by his side, she'll stand. Her connection was, I could still know him by feeling those nail prints again, even though at that time she would have her sight again. But from a blind poet, came the words of this song, I Shall Know Him. When my life work is in dead and I cross the swelling tide when the bright and glorious morning I shall see I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side. And His smile will be the first to welcome me. I shall know Him. I shall know And redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. Oh, the soul when I view his blessed face and the luster of his kindly beaming eye how my full heart will praise him for his mercy love and grace that prepares for me a mansion in the sky I shall know him I shall know him when redeemed by his side I shall stand I shall know shall know him by the print of the nails in his hand. Oh, the dear ones in glory, how they beckon me to come. 
and the parting at the river I recall to that sweet vale of Eden they will sing me welcome home but I long to see my Savior first of all I shall know him I shall know When redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall know him by the print of the nail in his hand. Through the gate. In a robe of spotless white He will lead me Where no tears will ever fall In that glad song of ages I will mingle with delight But I long to meet my Savior First of all, I shall know him, I shall know him, as redeemed by his side, I shall stand, I shall know course with me. I shall know him. I shall know him. When redeemed by his side, I shall stand. I shall know him. I shall The most beautiful thing about that song is the fact that we shall know him. I, I preached a message you know, five, six, maybe even seven years ago. And in it, I, I had done some, some research and had found a quote for, from some, some, group, some music groups. And in that, one of the groups says, in the music scene, and I'm quoting, maybe paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but the quote was, in the music scene, it is cool to search for God. It's not cool to find Him. And it was this understanding that there was this kind of continuum. I'm searching. I'm, I'm on a journey. I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself. I'm finding my place. But 
they never got to any destination. And I want you to know today, it is absolutely possible to know God. Paul said it this way. He said, not only that I would know God, not only that I would know God in His majesty, but that I would even know Him in the fellowship of His suffering, that I might know Him. The Bible says that we can know Him here on earth. We may only see in part and, and, and know in part, the Bible says, because it's as if we see through a glass darkly, or, or better, it's as if we look in a dirty mirror. Or Probably that's not even the right translation, because you have to understand, back in those days, they didn't have the mirrors that you and I have. Their mirrors consisted of highly polished uh, 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 pieces of metal, and they would get tarnished. Any of you have any old silver in your house, or you know what I'm talking about, where it gets tarnished and and if you didn't constantly scrub it and scrub it and scrub it and polish it, it would get tarnished and slowly over time it would be hard to see the reflection. And the Bible says that that's what it is. We see through that glass darkly. It's hard to see it all because of humanity and because of, of our nature and the sin that's here in this world. But the Bible says on that day when we step on that street of gold, we will see him as he is, that I might know him. Hallelujah. Thank you, Brother Buford, for singing and leading us in that. I appreciate that. Hallelujah. Uh, Before you're seated, have you ever heard this phrase, with friends like that, who needs enemies? You ever heard that phrase before? Just sometimes it's not always the enemy that, 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 that messes us up. And I, I want to talk, I've got a very long title, I've tried everything, and maybe the media guys, they do a phenomenal job giving me good titles when I don't give them one, but I just kind of want to preach that, that, you know, don't do the devil's work for him. You know, we, just, just, just give me a moment before you see it. There is a devil, Okay. There is an enemy of our soul that from before time began desires to to trip up and mess up. He's jealous because God has given us redemption and and, and he doesn't like it. He used to be the music director and the choir director in heaven and and, and he turned on God and his arrogance and his selfishness and he gets mad when our worship ascends to the heaven. There is an enemy and we preached a little bit about this I think it was Wednesday night. You need to know the enemy. He does exist and he is very crafty. He's very cunning. The little song we sing as a, as, as a child, the devil is a sly old fox, that's true. And he would like to do nothing more than derail you and cause you to end up where he's headed and he's destined and that is hell. But can I tell you, sometimes he's not even working, but we do his work for him. This is not my sermon, but let me give you one little side note. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. You've read that or heard that? Can I just help you out? Don't take his job from him. You don't need to be the one accusing the brother, and you don't need to be the one talking smack about each other. You don't need to be talking bad about each other. That's doing the devil's work for him. That's not my sermon, but I just want you to get on, the, on, on where I'm kind of going. Sometimes we do the devil's work, and he didn't even ask us. He didn't make us, and he sits back, and he goes, that's awesome. I didn't even have to work for that. Hallelujah. I want us to close our eyes and pray. Oh, I'm not going to read a verse at the beginning. We'll read it in the middle of our sermon. But I want us to pray that God's word would speak to us in a mighty way. Would you help me? Father, we love you and we thank you and we bless your name. Thank you for ministering and, and, and 
coming down to where we are and spending time with us tonight. I appreciate that. Thank you for the worship of this congregation. And I pray now as we delve into the word that you would speak loudly to us through the word of God. And we ask that you would let it be alive to us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can, you can be seated. In 1926, uh, or 29, 1929, in, in the Rose Bowl, some of you may have heard this story or you, you know it, but in 1929 in the Rose Bowl, uh, California was playing Georgia Tech college football. And uh, somewhere in the second quarter, there was a fumble that took place and uh, one of California's teammates by the name of Roy Regals scooped it up. That's, that's just something you like. You kind of like those what I call free, free points. You know, it's, it's, it's a fumble. You get it. Man, he scooped it up and he began to run. And he rumbled down for 60, uh, what, what is it, 69 yards. All the way to the one-yard line. And finally, he was tackled by his own teammate because he was running the wrong direction. He had gotten kind of messed up in all of the hubbub and he had taken off and, and one of his teammates tackled him because if he would have crossed the goal line, he would have caused it to be a safety, which is a two-point uh, uh, kind of conversion, if you will. And, and it really didn't matter because now they had to take the ball and they had to play that ball uh, so close and it ended up becoming a safety in the next down or two. And Georgia Tech won the, two, or the 1929 Rose Bowl eight points to seven points. I still haven't quite figured out how someone got seven points. I'm still debating that one. That's kind of a hard for me to figure out. They must have got uh, something, uh, 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 not seven points, I'm sorry, the eight points, which was the, the safety. My brain's not working for a moment. I see something. Uh, I'll get there. Just just hang with me. It'll come. Uh. <laughs> I wish y'all could be me sometime. Make me feel a little better. But just not quite 40 years later, a guy by the name of Jim Marshall, October 25th, 1964, in San Francisco's stadium, he uh, was playing, and he was a very fast defensive end. And another fumble happened, and he picked it up, and he took off. And on that day, nobody could catch him. And he scored a safety. And it's a good thing because the way football works is, is that would have been a safety with just two points. But he actually got so excited that he began to dance and did all the end zone, tele, uh, end zone celebrations and he threw the, the, uh, uh, the ball into the stands. And if he had dropped the ball and one of the, the, other, the, other, the other team would have, would have touched it, it would have actually been a touchdown for the other team, but it wasn't. But he, he got really mad because nobody was celebrating with him because he realized finally that he had scored points for the other team. Regal, up until his death in 1993, he was called Wrong Way Regal. How'd you like to go through almost your entire life from 1929 to 1993 being called Wrong Way Regal? Jim Marshall, does anybody has anybody ever heard of Jim Marshall? We got any okay, got a couple of, of fans here. Jim Marshall, most people would remember that what they don't remember is that Jim Marshall was he played 20 NFL seasons he played in 282 consecutive games he he 
stuff. This is, this is back when football, and, and I'm, I'm going to get political for a moment. This is back when football was real football, not this sissy stuff they're doing right now. But this was back when, when they could just, you know, lamb blast you and lay you flat. And, and 282 straight football games that he played in, 20 years. But in fact, a Hall of Fame defensive end Carl uh, Eller, which is another one of Minnesota's famed Purple People Eaters line, the 1960s and the 70s, has publicly stated that he thinks that it's that one play that at this point, at least in the writing of this, that has kept Marshall out of Canton, Ohio's Hall of Fame. One play. He, he scored for the other team. You know, sometimes, I, I, like I said, I, I know the devil, he, he works overtime in our lives. And, 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 and all of that is, is there. And we have to recognize what he's doing. We have to be cognizant that he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have to understand that there is a war for our soul. That, that he will do anything he can to keep you out of heaven. We have to realize that. But the longer I'm alive the longer I realize that he doesn't have to work as hard as he used to have to work. Because if we're not careful, we're pretty good at being the devil's advocate. In Genesis chapter 50, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 12, let's start there first. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said unto Abram, I want you to get out of your country, from your kindred, from your father's house, into a land that I'll show you. He goes on to say, into, uh, I want you to pass through the land into the plain of Moriah and, 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 and into Canaan, what we call Canaan's land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. Abraham was promised long before Isaac was born, even long before Ishmael was born. Abraham was promised Canaan's land. In fact, a little bit further in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, this was after Lot was separated. He said, lift up your eyes and look from the place where thou art northward. Look southward. Look eastward and westward. For all the land which you see to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth. If so be that man can number the dust of the earth and shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise and walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it for I will give it to thee. There was this understanding that God said to Abraham, I want you to, I want you to go walk around your promise. I want you to look and see. There's no limit as far as you could walk, as far as you could travel, as far as you could see. That's where you're going to be. And so it is that Abraham saw that promised land. And then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Jacob has his 12 sons, we're into Joseph. Joseph was sold by his, his brothers into slavery, goes to Potiphar's house, goes to prison, finally ends up in the, in the, the palace there of Egypt. And, and, and it all seemed good, but that was not the promise of God. I am thankful that sometimes in our moments, God blesses us in our messes. I'm glad that sometimes in our catastrophes, the blessing of God, the protection of God is there. But, but they were never destined to live in Egypt. That was not their place. There came a time after Joseph's death that there arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. He knew not the works uh, that Joseph had done and he had forgotten all of that. And the Bible tells us, I believe it's for 430 years, from the time of Joseph until the Exodus, for 430 years. Israel lived in bondage and captivity. It was a slow fade, to be honest. 
It didn't happen all at once, but slowly that Pharaoh began to look, and of course multiple Pharaohs after that for four centuries, until finally they lived and they were in bondage, and, 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 and uh, Pharaoh, another Pharaoh, I don't know which one it was, but the, the last Pharaoh that we find in Exodus at least, Pharaoh, he looks around and he says, you know what, there's a lot of these Israelites because God's blessed them in their captivity. And so I'm going to kill all of the baby, uh, especially the baby boys, and, and, and that way, you know, they, they won't reproduce and they'll die out and we'll be safe. And you know the story. Moses' mother picked up Moses, put him in a, a basket she had woven out of reeds and set him on the Nile River. And God's hand, it was not fate that brought him down the Nile River into Pharaoh's daughter's arms. It was God's hand guiding that. God knew everything he was doing. Guides that, that, that ark or that little, little ark of bulrushes into Pharaoh's daughter's arms. And she takes it and she says, oh, the gods gave me a baby. And Moses' little sister was, was, was watching and she had some smart about her and she came to Pharaoh's daughter and she said, you know, this is a little baby, it still needs to be nursed and, and I, I have a lady that could probably, you know, be a wet nurse for, for this boy if you'd like and they signed the contract and for the first part of Moses' life until he was weaned and until he could live the way he lived in the house of his mother and his father. Finally, he's raised for the majority of his life in the palace of Pharaoh. And all of that, and, and he feels that call, he feels that, that pull of, of God. Maybe he doesn't understand it's God, but he realizes that, that where he's at and, and the plan of these Israelites is not the plan that God had. And there's that moment where Moses tries to take matters into his own hand as he's now an adult and probably feels that privilege of being one of Pharaoh's uh, uh, sons, if you will. And he says, you know, I'm not going to let this, this Egyptian treat this Israelite this way. And he, 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 he fights that, that Egyptian, and the Egyptian dies, and Moses is scared. He buries him, and he runs away. He's in the wilderness, the burning bush. I know I'm going through a lot of history. Burning bush comes, and God calls Moses to walk back to Egypt to, to be God's deliverer of, of this, this people that we call the children of Abraham, this Israelite people. Moses goes back with his with with his 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 uh, uh, with Aaron, and there they begin to talk to Pharaoh. And you you have the at the beginning of Exodus, you have the 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 confrontation between Pharaoh and Aaron and Moses. You have the plagues that begin to start. But in it, I, I want to just I want to pull something, and I, I want you to look at it, and and uh, I, I want us to to just take a moment because I want you to catch. Some things that happen. I, there, there's a lot of spiritual significance between Egypt and the Exodus and God bringing them out. And, and while that was a, a, a true point in Israel's history and, and, and it's a, a historical event, in the spiritual world it's much as what happens with us. Uh, Egypt has always been kind of uh, indicative of a sinful need, of a fallen state that, that God has always longed to bring His people out of sin, out of darkness, into His marvelous light. And so there is a spiritual uh, 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 side of this story. There's a a spiritual uh, kind of you know kind of a type or a shadow, if you will, that God still desires to bring you and I out of that sin and into the promise. And I can tell you 
that that especially and and I you know those of you you've you've been called out of that darkness. I laughed so hard the other the other, I guess it was a couple Sundays ago. I'm trying to remember who who was here. The special speaker we had and patted Brother Cozart on the head and said, "Ah, oh, you've never sinned or you know done any of that. You've probably been raised and all this." And everybody started laughing because we've heard your testimony. We know where God has brought you from. But here's the thing. I can assure you that the moment that God put his hand on your life, Brother Cozart, the moment that God put his hand on your life, Brother Steve, the moment that God put his hand on your life, Brother Matt and Brother Jared, that devil said, I don't want that to happen. He will do everything in his power to keep you from getting to an altar where you could repent of your sins, be baptized, and be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't like that. In fact, I will tell you that there's a lot of times, you have no idea, just I'm going to pick on you for a moment. Uh, you're, I don't know that we can even consider you a new convert anymore. My goodness, watching you grow and mature in God is incredible. But you don't know how many times I prayed over new converts and those babes in Christ that said, Lord, please put your protection around them because I have watched the enemy come in and I have watched them weasel their way and derail somebody's journey to, to heaven. I've watched families all of a sudden just just kind of go crazy and, and, and there's all these excuses. I've watched jobs and it looks like it's a good job, but I've watched jobs hold people out of church. I've watched it. Well, the same was true in Egypt. I can assure you that the devil had no desire for, for those Israelites to walk out of Egypt and to get into the promise that God had promised them. That's not the way the devil likes to operate. He kind of, he doesn't like God to do anything. He would prefer that nobody gets blessed. He would prefer that nobody gets free. He would prefer that nobody is redeemed. And so it was that the first plagues began to come, and, and that first plague, the water turned to blood, and I find it funny that, that, that uh, uh, Pharaoh says, well, I've got you know magicians, and they can do that, and I still to this day don't know if it's the, the power of the devil or if it was just God saying, you're an idiot, so here, how about this? And So those magicians, they did their thing and more water turned to blood. So now you got double bloody water. Because that's smart. Yeah. Here, I'm going to break your arm. Well, I can do that too. Now I got two broke arms. You know, sometimes God has a sense of humor. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He gets mad. He, he, his, his ego is bruised and so now frogs come seven days pass with that with that bloody water and now frogs come <laughs> and uh, the Egyptian says uh, we can do that too and so now they have more frogs I've told you that uh, it's been a while but I've told you in the flood of 93 my parents live even though they live on the on basically kind of the top of the bluff of the Missouri or uh, yeah the Missouri River that point, they can't see the river. They're, they're about a mile away. If I could walk through the woods and the fields, they're only, they're only a mile, maybe even less to the river, but they're on the bluffs. And when that flood came, we didn't get flooded out. Nowhere around us got flooded out. But in our subdivision were millions of frogs. I, I've never seen it like this in my life. I guess whatever was flooding was causing them to come. And, and you could not walk outside without stepping or moving a frog. When you would drive in a subdivision, there was just two, and I know it's disgusting, but there were just two bloody smashed tracks where thousands and thousands of frogs were. 
11, 12-year-old boys, we played frog hockey. It was fun. There were frogs everywhere. There were frogs in the grass. There were frogs in, and if, if you left your garage door open, the frogs would get in there. Then they'd die of heat, and then they'd smell. Can you imagine? Now you got God's frogs coming. you got Egypt's magician's frogs coming. And, and Pharaoh hardened his heart and didn't listen. Third plague came, gnats. I'm so thankful, I guess. They tried to make those gnats. The magicians did, but they couldn't. Their powers were a little limited. They were only limited to bloody water and frogs. They couldn't do gnats. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And then flies came. Flies everywhere, swarms of flies, swarms of flies. Finally, after that fourth plague, Pharaoh called Moses. And I want you to listen. This is so, uh, if you kind of tune out of anything, you need to catch this. Because this is going to come into play later. Moses called Aaron, or Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. Now, I've preached parts of this before, but I saw something just recently that just caused me to examine this in a total different manner. Moses, under the unction of the Lord, marches into Egypt, looks at, at Pharaoh, points his bony finger in Pharaoh's face, and says, God says, let his people go that they might worship. They, God has called them out. God's got a plan for them. Think Mount Sinai. Think the Ten Commandments. Think the ark. God has a plan. We've got to go. Pharaoh says no. Plagues come. Four plagues. Finally, Pharaoh goes, okay, I'll let you go serve your God but you have to do it in Egypt. I'll give you full reign to worship him however you see fit. Now, I won't have any discrimination of religion. I, I won't persecute you for worshiping your God, but you have to stay in bondage. Look at your neighbor and say compromise number one. This is a, an attack of the enemy. Somebody listen to me for a moment. This is an attack of the enemy that says, I'll let you worship God as long as you don't change and as long as I still can have my hooks in you. That old devil will say, why don't you just compromise? I'll let you go to church. I'll let you worship God. I'll let you feel good, but I don't want you to leave the bondage that sin has put you under. That is an attack of the enemy. So, of course, Moses said, not on your life. We are not going to stay in Egypt. We're not going to do that. And it would not be right to do so. The offerings we bring and, and sacrifice to our God, they're going to be an abomination to the Egyptians. And if we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, they'll stone us. Now, just understand how this is, and I'm not, I'm not trying to talk about religions or, or, or make fun. I'm being very serious. In India, in the Hindu culture, they reverence cows. If you went and killed a cow or slaughtered a cow, it would be very offensive to them. This is what we're talking about. There were things in Egypt that if, if the Israelites would have worshipped, then, then it would have caused great chaos and it would not have worked, and they would have been in even more bondage and probably been stoned. Compromise number one, Moses said, not on your life. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Now the fifth plague's come. Egyptian livestock begins to die. 
The sixth plague come. Boils are over all of the people. Boils that broke out in sores. The magicians couldn't even stand because of the boils. And, and, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The seventh plague came. There was hail that pounded down and killed the crops and killed the livestock. The eighth plague came. Locusts came. And, and the, whatever survived the hail, whatever plant survived the hail, was now being eaten by locusts. And it was all gone. And and. Pharaoh is losing his mind. His, his great kingdom is beginning to crumble. He, I mean, there, there's, no, there's no crops left. There's hardly any livestock left. People are scratching boils and they're hurting. And so Pharaoh calls Aaron and Moses back. Look at your neighbor and say, this is compromise number two. And so it was that, that, that Pharaoh looked at them and he said, okay, I've had enough, you win. I will let you go and serve your God, but I want you to leave your, your, your families and your daughters go. How about just the men go and worship? Moses said, not on your life. Because if, if Brandon has to leave behind Brianne and Zane and Zoe and Zeke, there's going to be something that will bring him back he'll get out there and worship and it'll be good but there'll be something that causes him to come back willingly Moses said no no we're going to go and worship all of us are going to go that devil's thought I could get him right there I gave him a little bit more compromise I, I thought I could have it ninth plague comes darkness darkness that the Bible describes, it's not just dark, but it's a darkness you could feel. That's how dark it was. You couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. So finally Moses and Aaron are called back to Pharaoh's presence. And he says, all right, go and serve the Lord. I'll even let you take your families with you. Look at your neighbor and say compromise number three. I'll let you take your family, but leave your herds and your livestock behind. Now, it sounded good. You can get more livestock. You can get more herds. Problem is, they wouldn't have anything to sacrifice. But Moses said, no. We've got to take them with us. In fact, I like what the Bible says. Not a hoof shall be left behind. You've heard that political campaign, no child left behind? Moses printing posters up, no hoof left behind. No hoof. Moses said, if we're going to be free of this bondage, we're going to walk out of here with everything we've got. In fact, Moses didn't say it, but the Lord, the Lord proved it true. Not only did they leave with what they had and what they owned, but they basically ransacked Egypt and the neighbors were throwing goods. Neighbors were throwing jewels. Neighbors were throwing, uh, the Egyptian neighbors were throwing all of their, their wealth and said, just get out of here. And the devil was so aggravated because he had, he, he had, he had missed his opportunity to keep them from God's promise. He had worked overtime to try to convince Moses to compromise what God was going to do. And because of that, and because Moses wouldn't compromise, the enemy lost. A couple million Israelites march out of Egypt. I know they had their ups and their downs, and I understand that. And I don't have time. I mean, I'm already taking too much time, but... 
You know, they, they go to the Red Sea. God brings them through. They grumble because they're hungry and manna falls from heaven. They grumble because they're sick of manna and quail fall from heaven. They, they grumble because they're thirsty and a rock opens up a couple times and gives them water. And, and God brings them to Mount Sinai and they get the law. And there's this incredible moment, a holy moment. And there, there, there's, there's attacks where God delivers them from the marauders and from those roving bands of, of, of people out in the, in the wilderness and it's a miraculous thing now again it was supposed to be just a month or two journey from Egypt to Canaan's land it ended up for 40 years they wandered round and around and from what I can understand and from what I can see they were never more than about a day's journey from their promise they wandered around that, that land until all of those except Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and Aaron, and Miriam, as far as I can tell, allowed them to, 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 to die out in the wilderness until they could at least see the promised land. God allowed Moses to see the promised land, and then he took him. But before they, they go, finally, after 40 years, they go to the promised land, or, or they're standing there at the edge of the promised land. And I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter uh, 32. So, so here they are. They have wandered for 40 years. And, and you have to think that, that in the back of their mind there was this hope that, that one day we'll finally get to the promise. One day we'll finally get to Canaan's land. One day we'll cross Jordan's river. One day, one day what God promised Abraham is going to come true. Get there finally. God says, okay, y'all have suffered enough. Those that, that didn't believe the report of the spies, you know, I, they, they've all died out. This is a new generation. I'm going to let you walk into the promised land. And so they're, they're getting ready. Verse 1 of chapter 32 of Numbers. And the people of Reuben, that's the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazar and the land of Gilead. Behold, it was a place of livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, he said, uh, the land that the Lord has struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for your livestock, and your servants have livestock. And if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across to Jordan. Did you catch that? Seriously? You've wandered for 40 years hoping you could walk across and get to the promise and they settled in the wilderness. I don't know why. I don't know if it was despair. I don't know if they were just tired. I don't know if it's because they forgot the promise and this looked good. And they said, we'll just stay right here in the wilderness and we're not going to go over and, 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 and claim the promise that God has. And in, 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 the, in the back of, of, of wherever you want to see, the devil was losing his mind. Are you serious? I didn't even have to do anything and they're not going to walk into God's promise. And the devil, he is, just, he is just beside himself because they are doing exactly what the devil wanted them to do in the beginning, but this is them and them alone. Moses says, guys, this isn't fair. You see, when we go and cross that Jordan River, 
the Bible, or the, you know, the word of the Lord said we have to go and possess the land. we got to go and fight. God is not going to just lay everything there and we walk in. There's going to be some battles we have to fight. Now the Lord is going to go with us and the Lord is going to be with us and the Lord is going to fight our battles. But, but we need everyone to fight. It's not going to be fair. For this whole group right here, y'all just sit over here and you have fun in, the, in, in your halfway promise and, and, and you got to come and fight with us. And watch this. Remember I told you three compromises the devil tried to do. But watch what is said in Numbers chapter 32 and verse uh, 25. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben said to Moses, Your servants will do as the Lord commands. Okay, watch this. Our little ones, our wives, and our livestock, and all of our cattle will stay behind while we go and fight for you to get the promise, and then we'll come back to the other side of the Jordan. Exactly the words the devil tried to get them to compromise in Egypt, they compromised in the wilderness. We will, we don't even want to go and worship in the promised land. We'll just go and fight your battles. That's the dumbest thing you could ever do. Fight somebody else's battles and you not get any benefit out of it. That land that flows with milk and honey, not yours. That land that God has promised to Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and, and all of the children of Israel, not yours. But we're going to leave our family behind and we're going to leave our livestock behind so that we have something that brings us back. And they did what the devil desired them to do. If you go to the book of Joshua, I don't have time. If you go to the book of Joshua, you'll find that it happened exactly like that. They even reiterated, we'll leave our families behind. And as I begin to look in that and I begin to read that, I begin to realize that there's a lot of moments in which we do exactly that. It's one thing to fight that big old bad devil, but sometimes we do the devil's work for him, and the devil doesn't ever have to lift a finger. We settle. We, we get complacent. We like the moment more than the promise. We say, you know what, this is pretty good, but you don't understand what's over here. You don't understand what God has called you. This is not the life that God's called you to. It might be okay. You might even have some blessings of God. But this is not the promise. Don't settle. Just turn with me in the book of Philippians chapter 3. I want to walk through about three portions of scripture. And I want to kind of tie this all in. And, and, and bring us uh, to a close pretty quickly. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, Paul is, is talking about righteousness through faith in Christ. And, you know, but but he, he goes on to say in verse 12 of, of Philippians chapter 3, it's not that I've already obtained this righteousness or that I'm already perfect, but here's the key, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. That word press is, 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 is kind of exactly what you think it is. It's to push through. As you can tell, I run a lot of marathons. 
Have you ever, I mean, I, I know some of you actually do exercise, and I appreciate it, and I'm, I think that's incredible, and one day I want to be like you. But I just like my donuts a little more. But have you ever done something, and, and, and maybe, I have to, see, I'm, I'm, I'll be 39 years old this year, but I've got to go all the way back to, like, high school so I can talk about exercising and pressing on. And, and have you ever had to run the mile at, at, in high school? One, one day, one time. I'm, I'm a fast runner in, 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 in short distances. I, I really can hold my own in short distances. But, but, but long distance, I've never been a long distance runner. And I mean, I, I would run the mile and, and, and it'd be like I'm, I'm breathing glass. It would hurt me so bad. But one day I decided I was going to just, just take off and I was going to run that mile and I was not going to stop. Because normally, you know, I mean, you didn't get a bad grade if you ran slow. So... I mean, it didn't matter if it took me 15 minutes to finish the mile. Okay, so what? But one day I decided I was going to run as fast as I could, and I took off. And, of course, you know, in gym, they work you up to it, but I took off, and I never slowed down, and I ran the fastest mile of my life. I ran it in about seven minutes. And I, I, I thought I was going to have a heart attack at the tender age of about 15. <laughs> but I was okay that first lap. I could do that. That second lap, I'm sucking wind and I'm hurting and I'm dying and I'm thinking the world is spinning out of control and take me home, Lord, quickly. Here I come. It's just over the, you know, the, the, the horizon. But, but I just decided I'm going to press on. I couldn't breathe. It was hurting. It was painful. It, every muscle in my body ached. But I just had put a goal in my own life that I wanted to do it. And this is what Paul said. Paul said, I'm still running a race. God called me the, the starting line for Paul. Maybe it wasn't so much his birth, but it was that new birth there on the road to Damascus. And it was that baptism that, that Ananias did. And Paul said, from that day on, I've been running. I've not obtained it yet. It's not perfect. I've not crossed the finish line but I press on I forget what lies behind me and I strain forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus I'm doing everything I can I'm pressing and I have I, I have I have successfully allowed the devil to be in my rearview mirror I'm moving past faster and moving past what the devil and his clutches are trying to do but Paul realized one of the greatest enemies of our walk with God is also not so much the devil, but it's our own self. We're our own worst enemy. And Paul said, I'm pressing. I'm pressing, I'm pressing. He says, listen, I've often told you and I'm going to tell you with tears, some people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice, he didn't say they walk like the devil. He didn't say that the devil has gotten a hold of them. He said there's some that have become enemies of the cross and they're playing the devil's advocate. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. That's a selfish, that's a, a me, me mentality. I must increase and all of that. Their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame. Here's another key. Their minds are set on earthly things. You don't even have to think about sinful things. You can just think about earthly things. That's why Paul said, Maybe it's lawful for me to do it. Maybe there's no commandment. Maybe there's nothing in the Bible that says thou shalt not. But he said there's a lot of things that are not expedient for me. 
Too many times you ask pastor and you say, Pastor, does God say this is wrong? And you're looking for a black and white answer because you just want to check off some things. But sometimes God is calling you a little farther. And he says, look, there may not be a, 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 a you know, yes or no or a right or wrong in his word, but are you going to be the devil's advocate with what you do? I'm glad you got a job. I really am. I know what the, 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 the uh, uh, um, economic climate is. I understand the importance of a job. But sometimes the greatest attack of the enemy is not a curse. It's not Job where you lose everything. Sometimes the devil says, I'll just quit messing with you. I'll let that job come. I'll let that promotion come. I, I, I'll let those accolades begin to pour in. And the devil says, I'll sit back. And you'll stop coming to church because the blessings were there. And no things that may not have been wrong, but they certainly weren't expedient. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Just to give somebody hope, I'll let uh, whoever's ending, y'all can come. That way someone says, hey, he's almost done. He's kind of on a roll today. It's the fact that I couldn't figure out that a touchdown was seven points. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's look at verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. For every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do so that they may receive a perishable wreath. Think back of the of the Roman and the Greek Olympics that, that we talk about. You know, they would get that laurel wreath that they would put on their head and that was, to them, that was as good as a, as a gold medal. That wreath. But in a few days it would get dried up. He said, they, those are running for a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable prize. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I made fun of the NFL earlier. And one of the things that just cracks me up when one of them guys does something incredible, they 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 catch a, you know they they break a, a tackle or two and they're running the right way you know they got it all ready and they get so caught up in in how good they look. I've watched one guy I don't remember which game it was but I I, I saw he spiked the ball. I mean, it was, it was a touchdown. He, he was, there was nobody near him that could touch him. It was an incredible play. And he spikes the ball and he begins to do his dance, but he didn't realize he spiked the ball at the one-yard line. He got too excited, didn't cross him. It's insane. Paul said, why in the world would you go through all of that and not win? Reuben and Gad. Why would, you, why would you march for 40 years 
and go through all the things that Moses said you had to go through. When if you wanted to do that, you could have walked there the first day you left Egypt and settled right there and never had to do another thing in your life. Why in the world would you go through all the trouble and not cross Jordan's river? Because I'm going to tell you today, to be honest, the devil's not really concerned about what you're doing right now. He's concerned about your eternity. And the devil is perfectly fine with you loving God all your life here. And then you giving it up at the last moment and joining him in hell. He says, why would you do that? I'm not, he said, I don't box as one beat in the air. Think shadow boxing. I, I like sports, I really do. And every once in a while I've watched them and seen them and, and, and I've seen some boxing matches. I've seen some UFC matches and I've watched guys tire themselves out because they thought they were so cool with their feet work and they were dancing around and they got so tired that they couldn't finish the fight. I'm not living for God to get tired. I'm living for God like to what my dad sung at the beginning, I might see him. And I don't want to get so close and then play the devil's advocate and mess it up. Would you stand with me? And would you turn with me one more time to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, although I would think that a lot of you wouldn't even need to turn there. You could probably quote it. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Two different things. One is sinful. One is, is an, a, an affront to God. One is, gonna, is, is, is absolutely wrong. It's a sin but the other is a weight. I, I, I know this might not be the greatest theological sound way to, to, to look at this, but just for today's sermon, sin, say that's the devil's work. That, that's, that's doing what the devil wants you to do. That's following after your father, the devil. That, that's him. But the weights, that's what we do. And the devil just sits back and goes, keep piling those weights on. I won't even have to lift a finger. I've seen one, I think it was a boxing match. This was a clip I've seen. One boxing match. Where the guy was going crazy and he was, he was beaten. And he had that guy lined up for a massive sweeping right hook. I don't know how it happened. But he missed that guy and smacked his own face and knocked himself out for the count. And the other guy, you know what he did? Seriously? In 39 years, I've seen a lot of people that the devil has raised his hands in victory and the devil didn't even have to throw a punch because they played the devil's advocate and they had, they had withstood the wiles of the enemy they had stood strong when the enemy had thrown everything and the kitchen sink at them and they had stood strong they were in church they were praying they were fasting and everything was happening and then somewhere in their journey the devil just left them alone. 
they became their own worst enemy. And they became a Reuben and Gad that did exactly what the devil wanted them to do. And they settled and never crossed into the promised land. And I'm here today to tell you, I, I know that, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I really understand. I, I know the sermon I've preached. And I understand the, the, the response that, that is called for. And we will have a response. We're going to open the altars. They're going to sing. But to be honest, I'm not looking for some weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not, not looking for this altar to just be filled for an hour or two. I'm here to tell somebody, don't get weary with well-doing. Because to cross the Jordan's river had always been the promise. It had always been the heartbeat of Abraham's descendants for centuries. But discouragement... And, and impatience became their downfall. I'm sure if I thought harder and, 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 and spent some more time, I could have come up with some other things that were there. And, and you may, and I, I believe that's part of the beauty of the Word of God, that, that, that God lets you start kind of finishing my sermon for me. And, and, and God's talking to you saying, this is, this is what you need to think about. But for somebody right here, you better be careful that you don't let discouragement cause you to settle in the wilderness and never reach the promised land others of you need to be careful that you don't get impatient with the journey that God has taken you on and you don't stop just before that trumpet sounds don't do the devil's work for him I want you to close your eyes I've preached my way I've, 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 I've preached the word of God and I've tried to do what I can do and what God has laid on my heart but now right now it's between you and the Lord and I want you to begin to speak to him I'm opening these altars but I'm also hallowing the ground that you're standing on you might need to just turn around and kneel at your seat 